Some of you um, are old enough to remember in the mid-90s, a series called the Left Behind series. I was a teenager and a, and a young adult at the time, and I, I ate it up with all the rest. I mean, it was stocked up, ready to go, being ready to sell at bookstores, even at you know, non-Christian bookstores, and it was a raging success. And I was just fascinated at this imagination of what would the world be like if all of a sudden Christians were just snatched up. And some of you were old enough in the 70s with a book that came out called uh, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. And both of these books uh, were just raging success and New York Times bestsellers, and people were fascinated and, and cheesy movies were adapted from these books. And I tell my kids, we had this thing called a VHS. And there were all sorts of videos that churches showed in the 70s, 80s, and 90s about uh, just scaring you into heaven. You know, it's like, don't be left behind. And, and, and so Pastor Derek also said back then he had a T-shirt that said, when the rapture comes, I'll be, and then in bold, out of sight. And I just had to bury my face in my hand. That's awful. So, but we need to be careful, though, in all of this. Because implicit in all this is actually something unbiblical. Something that we need to watch out for. And it's this. It's this notion that if you put your life in Jesus, if you trust in him, he will deliver you from all suffering. That is not the message of Revelation. It's not really the message of the Bible. The overall message of Revelation is, yes, there is suffering. But the reality is, and you need to know this, Christian, is that Jesus Christ sits on the throne. He's ruling and reigning as we speak. That's the overall message. And so the problem is many Christians in America, we fear suffering like crazy. We do as much as we can to alleviate pain and to avoid it. I mean, we lose our minds if we're inconvenienced. And at the core, what the problem is with all this is many self-professing Christians are scared to count the cost of following Jesus. There's a theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said in his classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, in his study of Luke 9, he, he says this famous quote, when Christ calls a man, and I'll just add a woman, he bids him and her come and die. And that may look different from, for different disciples, but it is the same death in Jesus Christ, namely death to the old man and woman at his call. The student is not above his teacher. We follow Christ to the cross. And we die to ourselves, but we also rise up with him in resurrection to new life. So suffering then, according to Bonhoeffer, is the badge of true discipleship. Truly, if you are suffering... There's nothing wrong with you. You are a disciple. You are following Jesus to the cross. So it's not a matter if if there's suffering in your life, but when there is suffering in your life in the name of Jesus. The question is, how do we respond in this broken world? 
And this is for our word for us today. So um, I want to ask you to stand as we read the word of God. Revelations chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Suffering will come. The Smyrnaeans were told to expect it. The message Jesus gives to the Smyrnaeans is actually not, hold on, things will get better, I promise. That's not what we read here. Jesus is telling them they will suffer for 10 days, which is one of those special numbers in Revelation. 3, 4, 7, 10, 12. They all represent completion. Your tribulation will reach completion. But he's essentially telling them, you are going to die at the end of this tribulation. In his sovereignty. You'll read, uh, uh, in, uh, two weeks later, we'll cover a church where they're facing the same persecution, but they will be delivered. But God in his sovereignty has allowed this to happen. So what is going on in Smyrna so we can understand for us what is going on? Two things here, what led to this persecution. One is this thing called the emperor cult. In Smyrna, um, uh, in this background, uh, there was a Caesar named Tiberius. And three years before Jesus' public ministry, he wanted to establish this thing where um, people were required to say, Caesar is Lord. Not just Caesar is king and acknowledging him as king, but Caesar is God. Okay? And, and so there was a competition with 11 different cities. Who gets the honor to build this temple for this emperor cult? Well, eventually Smyrna won out this honor to build this. And so there was this added pressure. We got a reputation uphold. We don't want to disappoint Rome. And so there was persecution for anyone who would not say Caesar is Lord. So that's what the Smyrnaean churches were dealing with. The other factor were the Jews, as we read here. The synagogue of Satan, Jesus called them. Now, Rome is, a, is, is really a fascinating study. For example, you got Genghis Khan, who was a ruthless conqueror, and he just built the, the greatest geographic empire the world had ever seen. But Genghis Khan was a terrible ruler. The empire fell apart after a couple generations. Rome, however, were also ruthless conquerors, but they were shrewd rulers. In order to make everybody happy without any telecommunication, they had this thing called the Pax Romana, which is Latin for peace of Rome. So they built roads and do all sorts of stuff. One of the things about the Pax Romana is um, in order uh, for you to be a part of this, um, you can practice your religion freely as long as you pay taxes and you follow our laws. You do that, 
We'll add you to our list, and you can be, you can be, you can worship whoever you want. You don't have to say Caesar is Lord, okay? So Judaism was one of those sanctioned religions. Jews were just a thorn to Rome's side. There was this constant um, history of, of them just rebelling up against the Romans, and the Romans despised the Jews. So to, to appease them, to make them happy, hey, you can have your temple, you can worship God, just follow our laws and, and, and pay the taxes. So they had a happy thing going on here. Well, when Christianity came to the scene, they were, as far as Rome is concerned, just Jews, and so they enjoyed relative freedom. Well, Jews were looking at it like, they aren't one of us. And so they cooperated with Rome in saying, listen, they're not, they shouldn't be part of the Pax Romana. They need to be persecuted. You need to make them tell you that Caesar is Lord. And of course, that wasn't going to happen, which resulted in hundreds of Christians being persecuted. One of the most famous martyrdoms in Smyrna, it happened in the second century by a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp was a little too anxious to be martyred, I think. <laughs> I was like, dude, settle down. But he was excited to go and be burned. I'm like, wow, this guy loves Jesus. And, um, but that's what we're dealing with here. That's what Jesus is talking about. Not hold on and live. Hold on and die. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. What do you do with that passage for us Americans here? What are the likelihoods that we Americans are going to lose our lives for our faith? I mean, you got thousands of Christians all around the world that need to hear this message, right? You know, we don't have to deal with, uh, uh, with authorities coming into our, our doors and then arresting all of us like they do in China, we don't have to worry about uh, uh, militias knocking down our doors in our homes and raping and killing Christians like they do in Nigeria, right? We, don't, we have this thing called uh, the First Amendment, a religious constitutional liberty. So how does this apply to us? Well, Jesus does call all to die. It may not be a physical death. But there is a sense where you are called to die so that you may live. And that's the word for us today. And as we, we may face marginalization, marginalized because of your stance on marriage or sexuality. You may be forced to resign your job because of an unbiblical stance your employer is making you take. Or you may be isolated relationally because you are a Christian. But regardless of the level of suffering, there will be suffering. Christ is calling, calling you this morning to count the cost of following him, even in America. He says in the gospel of Luke, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So what we are going to focus on today is not if suffering comes, but when suffering comes, what do we do? Scripture tells us to consider three exhortations. Number one, when suffering comes, see Jesus for who he is. Here in verse 8, we see that he is the first and the last. He is the alpha and the omega. 
In the beginning, all things were made through him, and in the end, he will judge the living and the dead. Jesus is Lord. There's nothing beyond his control. Jesus doesn't worry like we worry about life. He is absolutely in control. He has ascended at the right hand of the Father. And he's ruling and reigning as we speak. So he is the Lord of your suffering. That's the first thing you do when you are suffering. Consider who is Lord over this suffering. The circumstances or Jesus. He speaks to the raging storm and the storm can do nothing but obey. He feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. He heals the lame and the blind in all affirmities to flourishing and functioning bodies. He casts out demons and they, 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 they shriek in defeat. None shall have the final say. The final say belong to him and to him alone. And so when you're feeling the sting of suffering, whatever it is, there's nothing wrong with you. Even if it's in your own hands, just from some idiotic decision you make. You're not unique. This isn't karma. You live in a broken, fallen world where suffering is the norm. That's why Peter says, do not act surprised when suffering comes your way, as if something strange is happening to you. Know that even Christ in his earthly ministry underwent suffering. And he sets a pattern for all of us Christians. So in verse 8 also, we see Jesus for who he is. He is also the one who died and came to life. In Christian discipleship, it is a pattern of humiliation and exaltation. Whether in small cycles in life or ultimately in this life now and the life hereafter. The Apostle Paul speaks to this in Philippians 1, 29 to 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And there it is. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now here that I still have. So Paul is exhorting us. You don't have to just imagine the worst when it comes to suffering. When you love someone, that's some form of suffering because there is a sense of loss. Because if you remember from the first epistle of John, love is an action. It's not a sentiment. When you love your children, there is a loss of time. There's a loss of resources. There's a loss of something. When you love your neighbors, when you love anyone, there is a sense of sacrifice. But the amazing thing is, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. There is joy in the suffering. And that's why Hebrews had the audacity to say, that it is a joy set before Christ that he went to the cross. So Christ is the example of that love in his death and resurrection. Paul's marveling that the Son of God chose to come down and to be one of us. And the, he was a form of God, but he made himself a form of a servant. He became human. He was obedient unto death, even an excruciating one. And that's not the end of the story, though, is it? 
where God also exalted him and bestowed upon him the name above every name. So in this pattern, there's humiliation, but there's also exaltation. There is death, but then there is life. And so this sets up another thing about what we need to know about Jesus. Jesus says in verse 9, he knows your tribulations. What an amazing statement that Jesus says to you this morning. He says to you, I know what you are going through. Let's unpack that though. He is not merely saying, I know, I am aware of what's going on in your life. Much more intimate than that. He's even saying much more than, I can imagine what you're going through. I'm just trying to put myself in your shoe and I know what you're going through. No, no, no. When, when Jesus says to the Sermonians, I know your tribulations, everything that they are going through, Jesus has experienced. There's no imagination that needs to be involved here. He knows what it's like to suffer because of truth. He knows what it's like to be in poverty. The Son of God didn't come to a rich and powerful family to do his work. He came to a blue-collar carpenter family And so he knows with his calloused hands what it's like to work so hard and yet still be in need and yet be content. He knows all about the slander from the Jews. He has received all sorts of false witness and an unfair trial. So when Jesus says, I know your tribulations, he he knows from suffering from his own experience. He is there co-sufferer and he is your and my co-sufferer. We can go from uh, further here actually when he says I know your tribulations. Not just from experience and but w- w- there's something amazing that happens when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Paul talks about it as a union. You're not on your own anymore. There is this a union, and it's compared to a, a marital union. What God has brought together, let no man separate. It's why when Paul, when he was known as Saul, was persecuting Christians, and on the way to Emmaus, he was confronted by Jesus in heaven, and a bright light came onto him, and Jesus said to him something remarkable. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul must have thought, what are you talking about? I don't even know who you are. What are you, who are you? But such is the extent of this union. When the church suffers, Christ suffers. And, and, and what, you, what you cannot allow Satan to have you think is that you are all alone in your suffering. Where do you picture Christ in the midst of your most painful experience? Is he far away? Or do you realize the truth that he's right there with you? That he's experiencing the same pain you are. Such is the union. This union established by faith and fortified by love and sovereignty of God that that can never be broken. So when he says, I know your tribulations, he's saying, I know. I 
Paul says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So that's the good news. Remember, Christ set a pattern here. In this union, yes, he is suffering with you. But again, he has the final say. If he's suffering with you and you're going with him to the cross, that's what's going on here. What's happening then too? There is resurrection. This suffering will not have the final say. You will be delivered from this painful experience and you will experience resurrection, if not in this life, for sure in the next. And that's the hope we have. Here's the good news. The gospel breaks through in such a way when we say mortality, yes, but also vitality. We say brokenness, yes, but restoration in Jesus Christ. Addiction? Yes, but now liberation. And bitterness because of the pain someone has caused to you. Forgiveness. Jesus knows your tribulations because they're his too. And so because of that and because of the resurrection, there is hope. So don't white knuckle your, your suffering. You have a helper. You have someone that's walking right there through this pain with you. He says to you, I know your tribulations. And this sets up us for our next point. When suffering comes, see tribulations for what they are. Jesus says in verse 10, do not fear for what you are about to suffer. I'm sorry, but when you really stop and think about it, really, Jesus? Isn't getting thrown into a first century Roman prison scary? Uh, uh, what about the possibility of tests? The slander of being ostracized from society, being uh, denied of economic opportunities. Isn't that a scary thing? No, says the one who's been through it all. And I just have to think, man... If he says this to the Smyrnaeans, do not fear for what you're about to suffer, how much more us? One pastor said, America is the Disneyland of the universe. We're so blessed here. How much more us? Don't overestimate what your tribulations are. I mean, yes, we want to be empathetic for those who are going through tough times and be there right there with them. But when it comes to yourself, see them for what they are. Have perspective. Recently, um, Liz and I lost a friend to cancer. Her name was Sarah. And Sarah was a young mother. Her oldest is, is our youngest's age, three years old. And she also had a miracle baby. She had brain cancer, spine cancer, and it metastasized all over her body. And for some reason, God pre preserved that baby and was born in the middle of all that. And, and, um, and, and she uh, had to endure lots of pain. Here's the thing, though. She was a remarkable woman. If it wasn't for her beanie on her head to cover her hairless head, I would have forgotten she had cancer. Why? What's going on there? She had an eternal perspective. She didn't ignore the pain. 
She acknowledged it, but it wasn't going to dictate her life. In fact, because it's part of her story and it's acknowledged and she knew the gospel narrative, she leveraged that pain to advance God's glory. I mean, even the most hardened atheist had to listen to her because of what they see in her life. And it was amazing to see and hear about. And so, like the Smyrnaeans, she had her 10 days of, of tribulation. And so, there was a time when she finally, her body gave up and she died. And she was faithful unto death. And her funeral was absolutely a remarkable thing that it can only happen for a follower of Jesus. Because there was immense sadness. Because her two children will grow up never knowing their biological mother. And we've lost a friend and family. But there was also great joy. I mean, it was a worship service. You might even call it a revival service. And there was reported three people came to Christ at a funeral service. She's with Jesus. That's why we're joyful. And I'm just picturing, my gosh, how many times have I imagined the first time I'm going to meet Jesus for the first time? For some reason, I imagine a field, like he's a shepherd, and I'm running to him, and I'm giving him a big hug, and I'm thanking him. I'm probably going to weep, and, and I'm just like, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'm imagining it, we're going to be so intimate that I get to smell him, like, you know, that. Just, just what is that like? What does he smell like? Is he a, What? Man, she gets to see that. She sees more reality than any of us will ever understand today. We will never understand until we see Jesus. Because she gets to see Jesus on the throne. And she's witnessing the angels, ten thousands upon ten thousands, and people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation standing before, and they're all going to sing, Worthy is the Lamb, for you are slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests for our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So with our final point, when suffering comes, see the future for what it will be. With the future in mind, Jesus tells you at the, verse, at the end of verse 10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Let me ask you something. Do you think Sarah is longing to come back to this broken world? <laughs> no. No. She was faithful unto death, and she has now received, received, past tense, the crown of life. And in crown of life, what we're talking about is not a diadem in Greek, the, what a rulers wear, but what athletes wear. This laurel, this victory that you receive if you win the race. She's going to be rewarded. There's glory, and her pain is a thing of the past. God's preparing her for a destiny in the new heavens and the new earth. And Paul tells us, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. The problem in here is many Christians don't consider this third point. We, we, we don't see the future for what it will be. 
Some of us have shallow vision of what it will be. I even had one uh, person I was discipling tell me, Nathan, I'm honestly not excited about going to heaven. Because, I asked him why, we dug deeper why, he had just received whatever popular movies and media has told him. You know, the whole cloud, halo, harp kind of thing. Honestly, I agree with him. If that's your thinking of what heaven will be like, if that's what your view, uh, that's what your hope will be, it's not really exciting. I mean, I love worship songs. But even after two hours, if this is all we're going to do, I might wonder if I'm in the right place. And then 10,000 years later, more, 10,000 years more. No, that's not our hope. We, our future hope isn't a meaningless escape into heaven. That's not biblical. Heaven is a temporary abode. Heaven is described frequently in the Bible as the throne room of God. It's where God's will is perfectly carried out. There's nothing but obedience in there. Can you imagine such a world? What separates earth from heaven is earth is where his will is not being carried out. People all over the world have usurped his kingdom. Now you have fractured billions of little kingdoms on this earth and it's just broken. And our hope as a church is, is the prayer that Jesus tells us to pray. Our Father, hallowed be your name. Your will be done. Your, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're pushing it where God's will is realized on earth. And the church is where it starts. Hopefully when people come to church, they see how people interact. They see how people love one another. They get a taste of the kingdom here. On, and, and, and then when you go out, you'll see a sign that says you're about to enter the mission field. And you're bringing this kingdom into your homes, into your jobs, into your hobbies, whatever you do with your time. That's our mission. That's our goal. And someday, heaven and earth will be one. That's our hope. We have a glorious destiny. And what's cool is, I love what Kevin said a few weeks ago when he said eternal life doesn't begin in the future. It starts right now. Heaven and earth will be one partly because of your faithfulness, because of the faithfulness of Blue Valley, because of the faithfulness of Image Fellowship. We have a small role that we're playing in making this happen. And Jesus is including us into that. And the, so the future determines what we're doing right now. What's your hope in? This is why there are thousands of martyrs out there. Because they hold on to this hope. And nothing, no enemies of the gospel, not Satan, not even death, could ever shake them of this hope. So I ask you. Is Sarah's life a tragedy? I want to tell you from this perspective, this eternal perspective, emphatically, no. No. It is a, a life of victory. Verse 11, says he, uh, verse 11 says she is a conqueror who will not be hurt by the second death. I'll tell you what a tragedy is. A tragedy is a Christian who goes through life with no thought to a future hope. 
and gives his or her life to a life of comfort. Jesus is a second or a distant second to this idolatry of comfort. That's a tragedy. Because this person will make no lasting impact for future generations. Life is all about this person and his or her interests. So what Jesus is calling us to do today, this morning, is to repent from being a self-centered consumer and to give our lives away for the sake of him. So let's together, let's reclaim Kansas City for his glory, for his sake. Bring the kingdom of God, not your own kingdom, his kingdom, on this earth so that people can see God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. A little taste of heaven. You know what? The gates of hell can't prevail against us. They can't. So I believe some of you are called to join me in planning a church, to give your lives away to this. And it's one more thing that Satan has to deal with. Some of you are called to serve at Blue Valley and you haven't done anything to use your gifts, to do whatever, or just fill a need that the church has. But all of us, all of us are called to serve. All of us are called to put our family, our jobs, our hobbies, our time, our resources at the feet of Jesus Christ. So what Christ bid you today, as he does again and again, is come and die so that you may live. Let's pray.